1: She's assistant director of dance at the African-American Cultural Centers. We'll talk about a lot of things, critical race theory, how the arts can help healing and more. That's with Bridget Paul valenza coming up in the second part of the program today. But first, what a morning it is to talk politics. It's the morning after a primary election. We'll take some time to talk about that through the lens, as this program does, of racial equity issues. Professor Peter Yakabuchi Ric- is here from the Political Science Department at SUNY Buffalo State Warren Galloway is here. He's been a mainstay of our election coverage in years past, a Republican analyst and former county official. Perhaps relevant, though, because in the past, he has, many years ago, led a project to get more black and brown people into the GOP locally, a guy with a lot of expertise on this topic. So, Warren, let's uh, let's start with you. Thank you, gentlemen, both for being here.
3: Thank you for having Thank
1: us. Thank you. Oh, Warren, to what degree do the Republicans have a problem with embracing people of color. Uh, I know it's a discussion point nationally, but does that problem exist here in western New York?
3: Oh, definitely. Uh, the Republican Party, especially the Erie County Republican Party, is very basically non-livable in dealing with minority issues. They really didn't take a stand even on the m- May 14th. Uh, sh- massacre at Topps. You didn't hear anything from the local Republican leaders. Nick Langworthy came, went to Topps, along with uh, the Republican governor candidate. Lee Zeldin? Yes, Zeldin. They went to Topps, they laid some flowers, but they didn't even deal with the issue about white supremacist c- man coming into the black community massacre. Oh, they said, we're against the red law because we don't want to affect uh gun owners rights so it just shows you that they're not really interested and even their issues when they nominate people for offices they basically is they leave the city alone or the first ring suburbs alone they deal strictly in the rural communities where they got one or two issues that they can relate to what can be done about that if anything ever. Well, if you look at the historical presence of the Republican Party, the the Party of Lincoln, a lot of you African Americans stayed Republicans until the 1954-55 elections. That's when they started switching on the Democratic side. But I could tell you that many of my my grandfather and a lot of my uh, older aunts and uncles when they came up through the Buffalo ranks, they were all registered Republicans. The first black elected official in the city of Buffalo was a Republican. So when you look at this historically, but they have now taken issues that don't relate to the African-American community, and they're focused strictly on the rural community, and they have gotten just based on a few issues and not dealing with the whole piece of the pie. And I look at the uh, 23rd
1: Congressional District, the new lines were drawn, and that's why there was a, a primary yesterday. It includes mostly rural areas, uh, mostly a Republican district. Charlie Cook at the Cook Report analyzes these things and says it skews Republican by about 24 points in any typical election. Mm -hmm. It's Allegheny, Chautauqua, and Cattaraugus counties. It kind of snakes up uh, through a little bit more of the southern tier Mm -hmm. over to Schuyler County. But for the first time, it also has a spike that reaches up into Erie County, which is why yesterday, during the primary, we had two Erie County candidates running in the GOP primary. Carl Palladino Mm -hmm. and Nick Langworthy who you mentioned just a bit earlier. Nick Langworthy is ahead by about two thousand votes. Palladino has not yet conceded. He says there were some irregularities worth looking at. Uh, For example on the State Board of Elections website at one point it had no votes in but Langworthy still ahead. That's something that Palladino says he wants to look at. Uh, So the race is still active. But the reason I mentioned the shape of the district, Warren, is you you were talking about how they appeal to mostly rural voters. This particular district is mostly white rural voters, and yet they seem to have rejected... Carl Pelladino, who has made some racist comments in the past, is there hope there for you, or was there something else going on that just made Langworthy a better, better candidate?
3: I don't want no, to, no, I, I don't want to impugn. I don't want to say race was the issue if race wasn't the issue. No, I, uh, Nick Langworthy won strictly on an organizational vote. He's a former, a, a He's current, a state, statewide yeah. chairman, and when you have a low voter turnout like this, that's the machine vote. Kyle won Erie County, and we noticed that Erie County has a very weak Republican leadership in the Repub- Erie County Republican Party, and that showed. But where Nick won the rural communities, them were all uh, Republican chairmen who supported him, and that was a machine vote. I don't think it was very much of an issue-orientated vote. They both used Trump's name, which might help him down there, but it's not going to help him no place else. So you don't necessarily think. That a Paladino
1: loss means that the rural voters have in any way changed their attitudes towards someone with racial comments and baggage like Carl Paladino.
3: Well, they both do. Okay. I mean, look at Nick Langworth the way the way he deals with the Republican statewide party. I, I mean, he has no he has never spoken on no issues on race in this state since he's been chairman of the Erie County Republican Party, and never when he was uh, the state chairman.
1: Warren Galloway is with us. He's a former county official, a Republican who has done some outreach a long time ago. And we'll talk about this before the yeah. program's done. Uh, some outreach to people of color within the Republican Party. Peter Yakabuchi is also here. Peter, thanks for joining us. So SUNY. glad to be here. SUNY Buffalo State political science professor. As a technique, talk a little bit about Palladino style. He has said repeatedly that he's not a racist. He has had made some racist comments. He says that racism is not in his heart, but he still says things that no doubt offend black people. Is that a dog whistle? Is that a way of riling up the base, but then at the same time saying, "Oh, I was just joking"?
4: Oh, I think certainly it is. I think he's you know he's following the pattern that President Trump or ex-President Trump laid out, um, and and it's you know, say something outrageous and then back away from it. But everybody knows the outrageous statement is is what was truly meant. And even even by backing away from it, it just makes the media repeat the racist statement. Um, I, I think, you know, in this particular race, in, in New York 23, you had candidates that, for the most part, agree on almost every single policy issue. So it's not a policy race. No substance. It's, you're talking style. Yeah, it's a style. This is a style race. And you have Carl, who's bambastic, uh, aggressive, um, you know, in the mold of Donald Trump, where Nick Langworthy is more, as Warren just stated, Um, He's got a machine behind him, and he knows how to do grassroots politics, and especially in the southern tier, that's what it looks like won the race for him. So you
1: don't look at this result and say necessarily that mostly white rural voters that in the past had aligned with Trump, you don't say that those people have rejected Palladino, do you?
4: No, I, I don't think so. I, I think, it, as Warren pointed out, wh- and anytime you have a very low turnout race, and this is a very low turnout race, you're looking at the individuals that are motiv- motivated by local party actions. So Nick Langworthy spent most of his time down in the Southern Tier campaigning, meeting people, going to events, going to you know fundraisers and dinners. Carl didn't, and and that cost probably Carl the election. Carl assumed that because of his name, because of who he was, a former Republican nominee for the governor across the state, that would be enough. Um, Nick worked harder, and that's probably the best way to describe it in this race. And
1: let's look at Palladino's history. He ran for governor, lost, ran for school board, won, but was ousted, and now ran for Congress and lost. He's had roughly three elections that he's been involved in. Uh, Langworthy, on the other hand, born in Chautauqua County, significant perhaps for this district, and learned at the knee of congressman former county legislator for me former Erie County chair Tom Reynolds yes he, he Nick has been involved in campaigns a lot more than Carl
3: yeah organizational campaigns and running campaigns, and, yeah and being under the the mentorship of Tom Reynolds he learned how to deal with people, learned how to deal. The only thing he didn't take from Tom, that Tom was very good. He, Tom knew how to reach into the minority community. When he was a uh, legislature, he and Roger Blackwell worked very well together.
1: So Roger was chair of the Erie County Legislature, legislature. As at Tem- a time when
3: Tom, I think, was... Uh, the the minority leader yeah. for the Republicans. Yeah, but they worked very well. They knew how to compromise to get things done. Even when Tom was congressman, and at that time I was working for county executive, Gerald Giambra, Tom got involved with a lot of funding issues going through the county and the state at the time, Governor Pataki, to get money for certain minority organizations on the east side. So, Tom knew how to play the political game. Nick hasn't learned that yet. Or Nick has come out there that I got to deal with strictly these rural white folks. I don't have the time to deal with African Americans. I'm not interested in expanding the party because we reach into the city all the time and we always get our butts kicked. So, he basically came back, you know, we aren't going to deal with city issues instead of coming up with candidates that might relate to African Americans african-americans and he never did that
1: i alluded to it earlier though once upon a time you were involved in an effort with the GOP party to try and uh, gosh that's redundant GOP party yes. uh, like ATM uh... ATM machine you were involved with the, the party at one point trying to bring more
3: people of color into the local republican party give me some of the history well, tell we, me how it yeah, worked yeah, we developed a group called republicans of color Rock. At that time, when we formed it, we had some middle of the road Republicans. We had a George Pataki governor. We had a Bob Davis uh, Erie County chairman. Plus, you had the Joe Giambra as a Republican who was basically grew up as a Democrat. Right. So you had a better flow of people with the moderates, and they understood trying to expand the party base.
1: But did it work? Were you
3: able we to? Were, we were able to do things. We ran candidates. You know, we knew that, like, even when Joe ran for county executive against a Dennis Gorski, he got 11% of the black vote, which is okay. I mean, you know, we would love to get 20, 25, but they little 10%, helped him beat a powerful Republican, I mean, de- a Democrat in Dennis Gorski. So you win... By not having a majority, you can win based on getting a certain percentage that takes away from that uh, majority Republican candidate, I mean a a Democrat candidate. So that's what we were trying to do. But you know, after Joe left, Pataki left, Bob Davis left, and and Chris Collins was strictly a suburban county legislature, he didn't even want to deal with the inner city. Uh And that's the way that the Republicans have developed over these years. And so it wasn't necessarily
1: anything that we've seen on the national level. It was just a local swing of the pendulum
3: away from moderate Republicans. Yeah, I think historically is that any Republican that won statewide has been a moderate Republican. Nelson Rockefeller, Jacob Javis, George pataki these were not the far-right Republicans, even... If you look on the other side? A far left Democrat won't win statewide. We're a state, of basically. I call us centrist. We believe government has a responsibility in certain things. Now the other laws, we have problems. We you know gun control and, and abortion rights. But see, we're starting now to say the abortion rights. It's not. They're not pro life. They're pro birth. Because if you were pro life, you wouldn't cut all the programs to make sure that baby's raised in a healthy environment. All they're interested in is pro birth, where they're not, and then after their birth, we cut all, all the programs to guarantee them to be a pro life person.
1: Professor Robert Spitzer at Cortland uh, State College has written a book called The Encyclopedia of Gun Control, one of about four books he's written on the topic. I interviewed him once. And he really kind of gave me that eureka moment. He said that gun control is not necessarily a Republican versus Democrat issue. It is a rural versus urban issue because the rural voters want their hunting and the urban voters, to a greater degree, have seen gun violence. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, was, was again, a bit of a eureka moment because I think the, the issue of gun control is usually framed along Party lines, but not necessarily the case here.
3: Well, if you think, if you look at the history of gun control during the Al Capone days, the NRA at the time and the Republicans, they're the ones that fought for gun control, banning these submachine guns. The NRA supported that legislation. Then, if you go further, in California, when the Black Panthers went to the Sacramento a state capitol with guns, all of a sudden, Ronald Reagan and the Republicans back then—they they were for gun control, you know. So they were playing it once he got on the other hand.
1: Interesting. Uh, you talked about the way the pendulum on the local level has swung away from moderates. Peter, we've certainly seen the same on the national level. Maybe Erie County started the swing a little bit sooner. But why is it that um, politics in general? more divided. Why is it that the Republican Party has swung from more moderate roots to where it is today?
4: Well, I think, I mean, it was a conscious decision. It's a strategic decision. It's the idea we can use issues, hot button issues, abortion, gun rights, uh, race relations. And, you know, uh, Warren mentioned Chris Collins, and it's not just Chris Collins, but Chris Collins, instead of trying to recruit uh conservative republican ideological leaning individuals within the city instead demonized the city and and instead said look my <coughs> suburban voters my rural voters we got to do everything we can to hold back what's going on in the city that's a conscious political strategic decision and we, you know we saw it with president trump clearly and the idea is well we'll juice up the base to an extreme well we'll we'll eschew any crossing the aisle to that and the idea that if we can juice up the base and if we can um, control district borders through gerrymandering to such an extent we don't need to appeal across the aisle we can guarantee ourselves wins and i and that you know that's been going on for certainly pre-trump but for a while what we saw with Trump and especially with recent candidates that 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 is really the model right now at least at the national level for republicans
1: it's interesting to note that you mentioned gerrymandering the aforementioned Tom Reynolds after his congressional career was talking about a lot of issues and i recall asking him once the same question why are we so divided and he said gerrymandering because you have districts now that are so very democrat or you have so districts now that are so very republican that it just
4: lends it to an extreme person winning the district rather than a moderate. No, certainly. I mean, and not just here, across the country. And, you know, we've seen the fight over gerrymandering here in New York as we just had the 2020 census and the redistricting. But look at New York 23. New York 23 is made the shape it is to isolate Republican voters into one district so that Democrats can pick up more districts. And if the Democrats' plan had fully gone through, they would pick up a few more seats. We see that in Republican states moving the opposite direction. It's not, that's, I will say, gerrymandering is not a partisan issue. Both parties happily do it if they have control of the redistricting process.
1: But I I wonder, I want to go back to what you said, Warren, about how the... uh, the change came about when moderate Republicans were a thing of the past. Republicans were then not able to embrace people of color as well. Do we also lay this shift then uh, the the lack of uh, interest in the minority vote at the feet of gerrymandering?
3: I think it's a, a gerrymandering is a result of that. Uh, I think that what oh
1: you're turning it around you're not saying one caused the other you're saying gerrymandering i i got you now yeah yeah
3: yeah, well because like when you look at when you look at how the republicans think that they are winning yeah they might win a district seat or 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 congressional seat but that's not filtering in to win the whole pie yeah um we have uh, we have a congressman coming from the twenty third, and a congresswoman coming from what's the uh, the twenty fourth, the, the, Claudia Tenney. Yeah, right. Her uh, her district was redrawn. She had to move to yeah. Canandaigua. So what I'm saying is that you might be a Republican, but if you don't control the House, what difference does it make? All right. And, and you know, and now we only have one upstate Democrat congressman, and that's Higgins who basically took over a whole rural urban center that you know basically controls that whole district. And if you look at going across the state, look at who's the congressman of Rochester or Syracuse. But Rochester, they divided up that area yep. so much that you'll never see a basic, I don't think, a strong Democrat congressman from that area because they just wiped up the city so much
1: do you think that broadly speaking the black vote has been diluted or is it a matter of okay this district is republican this district over here is democrat no
3: i think the black community has basically we are hemmed in we are considered strictly urban voters because of the segregation and racism in moving out to the suburbs you know we 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 look at the suburban in uh of migration in erie county most of your blacks are the 1st ring suburbs of chiquita mm-hmm. and maybe a little Am- amherst even tonawanas we're not out there in the numbers you go south hamburg or orchard park unless you're a football player you live in orchard park okay <laughs> but uh but further down you know you could count them on one hand that's like when you get become running in this area as a supreme court judge if a black can't get the bipartisan, you know, like the games yeah. that the parties play. Yeah, J-
1: judges are always cross endorsed yeah. by both parties.
3: Because right. if a black runs strictly as a Democrat, he might win Erie and Niagara County. Boy, but once he goes to Wyoming County, Cattaraugus County, that's where they lose. So, I mean, that's the way this suburban area, Rochester, Syracuse is the same way. You leave Syracuse and Rochester, go out in those suburban areas, there's hardly no blacks out there at all.
1: Is the solution then just to completely get rid of gerrymandering? (laughs) You'll never do that. Well, you you sensed my follow-up question. Yeah. Because even when the city of Buffalo city council uh, drew up new con- new uh, city council districts, and it's a, a majority-minority city council, uh, they-, they still, uh, according to many people, gerrymandered in certain people, so the incumbents have an advantage.
3: That's the difference, I think, with philosophies. The people who are complaining about the city results were basically west-side people. You didn't hear nobody from the east-side complain about nothing. And here they wanted to wipe out one district that a black has a, a better ability to win the Fillmore and develop a Allentown, Elmwood, that you'll never see a black win that seat ever.
1: Because of the way it's drawn or just because of the population? The population. Gotcha. Okay. So, again, the discussion broadens to segregation. The fact that 70-some percent of the blacks in the city of Buffalo are east of main
4: street
3: yeah yeah
4: that i mean that hasn't changed i mean that you know that that line of main street has been there since since both of us were little kids <laughs> and and you know and, and you can who you can lame the blame at is a number of people but certainly the political leadership of both parties can take blame for that continued uh, re- at least residential segregation within the city. Sure, and it's something we've kicked uh, about on this program a lot, obviously,
1: in light of the top shootings. Let me broaden the discussion a little bit then to 514. Um, do you see that, Peter, as an event that in any way long-term
4: will change our politics? I would hope it is. My initial impression after, what are we, three months out? About from, that little yeah, long? three months. Sure. Uh, I don't see it happening. Um, it has very quickly disappeared, and, and part of that is gun violence in America. There's there's always another shooting coming, and and you know we have not seen significant change. We did have a federal law passed, but whether that federal law will have the change that's necessary to stop gun violence, I don't believe so. Um, I focus on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court just released a decision that eliminated one of New York State's gun protection laws. So the Supreme Court is not going to be helpful in that area. So unfortunately, I don't see it. I, 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 it's going to take local leadership of both parties, but especially the Democratic Party um, focusing on, on the east side and the residents of the east side. And I just don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. All right, Warren
3: Galloway. Same question: What has changed politically, or what? what... I well, actually, nothing really. I I think all during the time after the massacre, one of the most embarrassing persons in the city had had to be Mayor Brown. You're bringing in all these national leaders, black leaders bringing them to T.O.P.S., and they see one supermarket in this town, and they see an area around it, all these vacant lots. Then I look at a mayor who's been a mayor of a black city, a black man, over 16, going on 20 years, and your base has looked like this. What have you done? So, I mean, that's what you think. If the politics of top doesn't reflect what needs to be done, yeah, everybody loves low-income housing. Why do developers build low-income housing? Because they get government money. If they go in there and develop neighborhoods, new housing, there's no government subsidies for middle-class housing, so they don't do it. But if you drive down an Elmwood or a Hurdle, why are those cities, uh, areas uh, progressing? Walk down those streets and look down the side streets. You don't see any vacant lots. You see, you see homeowners and houses. You go down Jefferson and Fillmore, look down those side mm-hmm. streets. I used to be a paper boy on Landon back in the day from Walters to oh. Jefferson. I had 55 customers, never forget. Mm-hmm. If I had that same paper out today, I would be lucky to have 13 customers because of the amount of empty lots on that block. That's how you're going to develop an economic base.
1: And yet we have had candidates for mayor, and I'm not even thinking most recently India Walton, uh, let's go back to the primary in 2017. Betty Jean Grant, Mark Schroeder, and Byron Brown. Uh, Betty Jean pretty much ran on a campaign of "Notice the East Side, Pay Attention to the East Side," and she lost. India Walton, "Notice the East Side, Pay Attention to the East Side," and she lost. W- what's up with that?
3: Well, again, who saved Byron Brown? The Republicans. He came. As soon as he came out at lost the primary, he called her. A socialist. He ran on issues that mobilizes that Republican base. Defund the police department and you're a socialist. That's who pushed him over. India, after she won the primary, her, her mistake was that she did not try to reach out to bring more people into her camp. The same base that supported her in the primary, that was the same base she had in November. She never expanded the base. You'll never win that way.
1: All right. Closing comments from each of you. Are you optimistic? What do you think the city needs? Peter, we'll start with you.
4: Uh, sadly, as a as someone who grew up here um, and then moved back, um, I'm not very optimistic, and, and I love this city. And I think the city needs strong leadership, um, and it needs leadership coming from both the county and the city government to invest in... Uh, minority communities in a way that's lasting and then a way that's sustained not simply a flash of you know a terrible event a tragic event happened on jefferson avenue so we're going to splash some money on jefferson avenue mm-hmm. and then you know we're, we're three months out and and it you know that's gone we you don't you don't hear politicians talking about it anymore i thought i, I was winding up but effort. i want to oh, sorry, sorry. No, that that's yes, okay yeah.
1: i i want to follow up on something you just said um kathy Hochul, governor kathy Hochul, has given 58 million dollars to the east side we're still kind of unsure how that will play out and who exactly gets that money but i i want you to comment on that for a second before we continue because uh the consensus or the idea is that gee the east side's never gotten that money politicians haven't gone there
4: now we have a shooting a politician has gone there. Do you see it making a difference? Well, I, look, $58 million is $58 million. It's, it's certainly better than nothing. But that's my whole thought is it's a one-time, let's inject $58 million. You mentioned yourself. We're not quite sure how that money is going to get out, who's going to get it, yet. how that's going to be defined. I would much rather her make a commitment that we're willing to commit You know, $5 million per year over the next 20 years to develop the East Side. Not here's a splash money. We don't know how, and you know, things like that that come out that quickly are usually not well administered. Um, I'd much rather be at a long-term program than a simple one-time deal. Okay, so that's basically why you're not optimistic. Yes, that's right. All right.
1: right. That's Peter Iacobucci, professor of political Mm -hmm. science at SUNY Buffalo State. Warren Galloway, you again, Uh, you've been on our election night for years. You're you're a Republican Uh, analyst. You're a guy who's tried to reach out to communities of color with the Republican Party. What does the city need, and are you optimistic?
3: I think this, uh, the city needs people with vision. You know, you, know, you know, the Bible talks about, My people with no vision shall perish. We've had leaders with no really vision. You know, I look at the Top supermarket. Topps was built under a Mazziello administration. Then, if you look across, across the street, you got that other strip plaza that was built on the Jimmy Griffin through Palladino's Delicate Development mm-hmm. Company then i look at what has a Byron Brown developed on that same strip nothing so so you need people with vision people who understand and you need a big mind mo- one of the biggest things that mayor white of cleveland did a long time ago when he was y- a young mayor he told the other uh, corporations i got this money I can do all all the infrastructure developments, but I need you to invest in this money. You know, the private sector mm-hmm. money. That's what they did in Baltimore. You got to come up with the visions of doing more public-private partnerships. That you got a government c- got to do something, but p- the but also entice the public. I mean, the private to come in and do what they got to do. And until that happens, and, and as you said the governor announced all this money look at what the city got for the uh, uh, pandemic money basically it saved the city from going into financial disaster paid off his bad debts and he helped lower the tax but you still had our property taxes raised so instead of worrying about i'm a mayor of raising tax not raising taxes we need people in there now who could do something and re- do a meaningful change But we saw, uh, and
1: uh, again, I thought I was winding up, but uh, we've still got some time. We saw what happens when a mayor runs on a platform of change. Uh, India Walton did not get that far uh, once it came to the general election. We're
3: not a, the black community, especially, they're not a really leftist group of people. Blacks are centrist you know my father didn't have a credit card he believed in putting things in layaway you know <laughs> i mean that's the oldness as heart. a conservative yeah, thing, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah right i get and most of your blacks unfortunately the leftists have have using black issues to get their strength at the same time hurting the overall objective of the black community i mean that's just what the reapportionment with this group that's fighting the new districts. They're using uh, racism, trying to get the mayor's and his council's district plan void. How can you use the race saying that this is racism when most of the people who's who's condemning it are white west side people? So it's another group that shows you that the leftists are using minority issues to try to strengthen their base.
1: Warren, uh, you've heard him on our election night coverage on a regular basis. There's one thing I have to ask you before we go. Yeah. Tell me about something else you're involved in, completely separate from today's discussion you are the I'm
3: the chairman of the african-american veterans monument committee all right that we developed and it's in the construction now a monument that represents all the african-americans who served in all the wars and conflicts that this country has ever been in revolutionary war to now there's no other monument like that in this country that represents all of them we're having the unveiling of the monument September 24th at the Buffalo Naval Park And this is the first. We've been working on it for five-plus years. And this monument is not only uh, a memorial to honor them, but to educate the community on the effects and what African-Americans have done in this country, fighting the wars, basically fighting two wars, a war against Germany and Japan, and then a war of racism when they come home. In large part, you just answered my next question. Why is a monument like that needed? for education if i tell you the first black the first person killed in the revolutionary war was a black man would you believe it christmas addicts yeah yeah if I would tell you that there was a, a unit in World War I called the Harlem Hellfighters, they could not fight with the American soldiers in World War I because of segregation. They were assigned to the French army to fight the same German en- enemies, and they were the most decorated group of soldiers ever from the French government. Where on the, the waterfront will it go? It's right on at the Buffalo Naval Military Park, right on the Erie Boulevard. And
1: the unveiling is September twenty-fourth. Yes. All right. Well we'll follow up on that. Gentlemen, this has been great. Thank you both for being here. Warren Galloway, Professor Peter Yacobucci. Stay with us. Bridget Jai Paul Valenza is next. She'll talk about critical race theory, how the arts can help healing and more. Jacqueline Cherry standing by from the African American Cultural Center. Stay with us. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York, an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy Central and Western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org.
4: Hey, we used to love this song. Still do what we used to do. WBFO The Bridge, college radio for adults. Check us out on the WBFO The Bridge app and of course WBFO.org/slash the bridge.
1: This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station.
2: Hello, I'm host Bridget I. Paul Valenza. Today, we are here with Jacqueline Carey. CHERRY, THE ASSISTANT DIRECTOR OF DANCE AT THE AFRICAN-AMERICAN CULTURAL CENTER. Jacqueline, THANK YOU SO MUCH FOR JOINING US TODAY.
0: HOW ARE YOU DOING? I'M DOING WELL. THANK yeah. YOU FOR ASKING AND THANK YOU FOR HAVING ME HERE. Uh, I'm, I'M EXCITED ABOUT SOME OF THE THINGS THAT I'M SEEING AND EXPERIENCING AND PARTICIPATING in. SO I'M DOING PRETTY WELL. IT'S, it's
2: BEEN SUCH A DIFFICULT TIME for everyone in Buffalo um, dealing with everything that's happened, um, the emotions around it, and the politics around it. Um, for our listeners, you may have already seen Jackie. Can I call you Jackie? Please. Thank you. Uh, performing most recently at the Tops reopening um when it reopened um talk to me about your dancing when did you start or when did you
0: know oh you know um (laughs) i used to watch in living color a lot and i loved those fly girls so much (laughs) and i said one day i want to be a fly girl (laughs) um And I just, I loved watching them dance. And and so I got into dance classes about age 10, I think. And I just never stopped. I just love dancing. And indeed, you are a fly girl. Hey, thank you. Take one and know
2: (laughs) it, (laughs) honey. Thank you. Uh, Was it a difficult decision for you and you know sort of how do your how do your parents react to okay this is what i want to do this is how i want to live my life and express myself and you know that can sometimes be a challenge for parents to hear hey child of mine (laughs) i'm going into the arts
0: well actually my mother and sister are both music teachers and uh, my brother plays drums and he writes music. So I come from a very, uh, very musical family. Mm-hmm. And so actually the, the, um, the idea was that I was supposed to pick up something in the arts, play some kind of instrument or something. I do sing. Um, but because my mother and sister are really good at, like, piano and organ playing, I was like, I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to go over here and dance.
2: <laughs> <laughs> because it's helpful not to necessarily have a compare and contrast. I'm going to just let them have their thing,
0: all the glory that they, you know, <laughs> that they deserve. So it's only
2: recently in recent memory that point shoes now point shoes for people who don't know what those are are the shoes that ballerinas wear um so it's only in recent memory in recent times that point shoes actually come now in different colors they come in black and brown skin tone colors Mm -hmm. versus non black and brown skin tone colors Um, as a woman of color was it difficult when you went to school when you were training Um, especially in an environment where there isn't that much representation
0: oh yeah Uh, ballet (laughs) for for the longest time ballet was considered the foundation of dance you know Mm. the foundation of all important movement Uh, and that is being confronted now um but as a black dancer <laughs> with a black body and features to my body that are not eurocentric um i've been ridiculed and criticized and and um i had a very difficult time really with the the, the fact that i wasn't accepted in ballet the way that i wanted to be i mm-hmm. love ballet um, but Ballet is about the lines. Right. So you have these lines um, from your arms down to your torso throughout um, your body. And so the whole point of point shoes, the whole point of um, ballet shoes being the same skin color is that it continues that line. Ah. And so when you're a black girl wearing pink shoes, the line is broken.
2: The line is broken.
0: (sighs) But black bodies aren't exactly linear we're very curvy Mm. already anyway so we don't really fit in the genre
2: right right and to have that i guess sort of that constant reminder um literally everywhere you walk talk to me about how one processes that that sort of inherent systemic racism (laughs) in the arts how does one process that as a as a person who teaches as a person who dances as a performer um as a casting person as anything in any place that has to do with the arts it's very eurocentric yeah how do you deal with it
0: uh i think It really just depends on like where you are in your in who you are and in your art Um, i have gotten to the place where i am happy to be who i am Uh and that took some work Uh um and i did really well my parents my mother my grandmother did a really good job of teaching me how to uh, assimilate okay so you got to assimilate you have to do these things to to fall in line and even if you don't quite fall in line just try (laughs) you know just do the things that that can compensate right um, and after a while, you just get sick of compensating. I don't want to do that. I want to, to live and express my art through my body, the way that my body is shaped in the skin color and in the movements that are native to who I am and my people. And so uh, I think you just have to kind of um, develop your conviction as an artist to say, you know what, this is who I am. This is my art. Right. Uh, this is this is my body these are my feelings
2: we are speaking with Jacqueline Cherry the assistant director of dance at the African-American Cultural Center Um, you danced at the reopening of tops on Jefferson how do arts help when we're processing Trauma when we're processing grief, uh, or even that's certainly one one subject. But also when you're processing joy, and and processing happiness, how how do the arts play
0: a part in that? Expression is really important. Um, I just went to the county fair, and I went on the the, the turning cup ride, <laughs> and I felt the thrill come through my body and so I screamed ah. <laughs> and it was important to let that out right to express the feeling that I had and when we when we are having very deep strong emotional feelings and we're dealing with trauma and situations that are affecting you know communities it's important to express to let go of those feelings to acknowledge those feelings and what art does is that it. you know there are so many different art forms I can take my art and express something that a lot of people are feeling and they can see it through my movement and through their uh, just through experiencing watching it they can kind of release some of that uh, feeling that they had Uh or if you hear a song and it's a song that that kind of reminded you of a sad time That might uh, just taking the time to reflect on that and to acknowledge that is important. So then when we have um, times of terror and of grief and of sadness and anger, expressing all of that together as a community and sharing in that time together is very important. It's part of the healing process to acknowledge that there's something wrong.
3: Uh
0: Um, And then to acknowledge there is hope. And there can be joy after this and constantly reminding ourselves, our community that we can work together to make things better and to come out of this with something that is fulfilling and, and joyous and happy and bringing us together. Those are the things that art does
2: mental health professionals will certainly tell you that, you know, the body holds trauma. This isn't the first time that we've talked about that on our program, um, or that some people are hearing it. And so movement sort of helps release that, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of performing and dance specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, what role, um, did that sort of that somatic sensory healing play in your choreography that you you did for the reopening of tops
0: so important (laughs) so important so that whole piece was about embodiment i'm embodying this feeling of reaching up for hope i'm kind of gesturing down in in embodying sadness and grief right so just kind of taking those feelings and taking the things that I really wanted to highlight and using the body to to illustrate them um, it's very important to be able to kind of call upon um, kinetic empathy right so if you have somebody who is doing a movement that you remember doing it might kind of you know bring that to your memory right. um, and, and bring up something within you so then when you see somebody dancing it and and they're doing it in an artful way, right, that
2: triggers that release. That triggers that for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and so it might even, <laughs> if you don't notice that you're tense in your jaw or you're tense someplace in your body when you're watching somebody else dancing, that might even help you kind of release some of that just in sitting where you are. Right,
2: which makes arts so important. Mm-hmm in terms of helping people heal helping a community collectively heal yeah um and then certainly with the individual being able to to release some of that that energy some of that um trauma that really is is held sometimes general generationally in people's bodies yeah. um that we don't necessarily always acknowledge. Um, because it's, it's difficult, right? These are, are difficult conversations. When you talk about movement and you talk about um, sort of sitting with sometimes this fear, um, a lot of those emotions, a lot of that movement, a lot of how you carry yourself as a person of color informs the things that are around you we were talking uh before we were on the air about a little bit about critical race theory Mm -hmm. and we were discussing you know traffic stops and how in terms of de-escalating a situation movement and and body is so important can
0: you talk to me about that a little bit (laughs) yeah so oh yeah critical race theory, right? What do you see when you see a person of color? What does the person who is conducting the traffic stop, the police officer, what do they see when they see a person of color behind the wheel? That question is informed, or the answer to that question is going to be informed by generations of stereotypes Uh and uh, examples you know negative examples of what people unconscious bias all all of these unconscious biases all of these things right so as the person of color sitting in that seat you simultaneously have to kind of take on or or account for all of these things that this person might be projecting on you and you have to fight against that
2: Mm
0: Okay, if I sit up straight and I speak proper English the correct way and make sure that I enunciate, maybe you'll see something in me that will trigger you to not feel like I'm the bad example of who you think I might be. Right. Um, and so your body language might either tense up or, or just try to project, you know some something other than s- other yeah.
2: than other than the fear that you might be feeling yeah. as that. As that occur and you know as, as that stop happens or or as that encounter happens
0: yeah and as as a person of color dealing with that situation you could be scared you could be angry you could be <laughs> dealing with a whole bunch of other things and so having to wrestle with all of those things in milliseconds mm. is really difficult but we are expected to do those things
2: and not only that there's an expectation that Our behavior will be a certain way that you know we will be as informed as law enforcement or with some sort of discipline military training yeah that needs to come I I guess inherently
0: well we're doing (laughs) it in schools okay my daughter so at the fair my daughter gets ready to go into the line to get onto a ride and she stood in line like this because she had been we have we militarize our children in these inner city in these black uh, predominantly black schools to stand in line and be quiet and and do this and, da, 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 and we have to we instill this importance of self control right from an exterior point
2: right but it's i mean you can certainly exhibit
0: self control
2: um, but that panic, that inner panic yeah. that's going on, manifests itself no matter how you how you try. how, how would you teach a, a child, uh, a kid, a teenager who's already, you know, teenagers in particular have a lot of, stuff going on yeah <laughs> a lot of stuff oh those poor things um <laughs> in addition to that they're in the car with their friends yeah. they get stopped yeah. and you know people have said oh if you're not doing anything wrong you have nothing to worry about everything will be fine mm-hmm. but n- no mm-hmm. everything is is not fine how do you teach a child to to exhibit that really adult type stuff when they're not an adult right (laughs) how do you teach adults that
0: (laughs) Uh, you know I don't know and I think there's there's something very important to be discussed in regards you know in terms of the difference between self-control and autonomy Uh because yeah okay I have self control but if I don't have autonomy to to do the things that I actually want to do. I just want to get through this traffic stop
2: right alive.
0: Alive. I don't care if you give me a ticket. Let me get out of here alive. Let me go home. Right, but if that's not under my control, and the only thing that I can control is how I respond to things. I think that might be a start in in how we talk to our children, talk to our teenagers about the overall situation. Um, it's easy for a teenager to. It seems easy for anyone to get caught up in, you know, the confusion of being accused of something, uh-huh. and the you know all of those, all of those emotions come at once, right? So, yeah, telling someone or expecting someone to really think on a macro level what's actually happening.
2: Right, right. You can't deal with what's before right. or even what's after. You have to really be in that. In that moment, yeah, um, and that's one of the bigger tenets of acting, of performing, mm-hmm. is being in that moment, being present in yourself yeah. in that situation. Oh. Um, so, if you were teaching a, a new dancer with her brand new brown point shoes mm-hmm. to do that, how would you how would you explain that? How do you explain being in the moment?
0: Um. I would explain first that you just have to pay attention to yourself. Uh Pay attention to how you're feeling. Where are you holding your tension? And then just try to navigate the steps that I'm giving. Uh Just try to navigate the steps that I'm giving. Um, If I'm teaching you the principles of this technique... i if i have if or if you have any prior training then you can pull from those things while you're paying attention so the the top stance that i did it was all improv Uh, and the music cut out which is good because the music cut out and um i just had to keep going but i was able to pay attention to what's happening with the music pay attention to how i can bring this kind of crazy situation, back to the objective at hand, which is to honor, right, uh-huh. and still do the movement. So it's just kind of—it's it, a hard answer, but the answer is pay attention to everything and kind of
2: focus, sort of on on that one, yeah, that <laughs> one thing that you're doing in in each moment and at each time, yeah. <laughs> That's not difficult. It's not difficult at all. Yeah, just... <laughs> I think that um, a lot of times we aren't present
0: mm-hmm.
2: in, in moments in our daily lives. That that's a, It's a skill. Uh, and it's a skill that I think a lot of us have to constantly work on mm-hmm. when we're having conversations with people to listen. Yeah and not be formulating the next thing that we're going to say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which means I'm not listening to what the other person is is saying. And so it's a way to communicate with your body. It's a way to communicate, certainly, with language. Um, All of these things play a huge role in sort of how we present ourselves, how we carry ourselves mm-hmm. as people of color through the world. Yeah. Do you find that it's it's more or less challenging to be a person of color than it was now, than it was 10 years ago?
0: Ooh. Um, I don't think it's more or less challenging. I do think, however, per, f- f- my personal opinion comes from a recent kind of enlightenment right Mm -hmm. um personal enlightenment so i wouldn't say that it was more difficult or easy uh, because there are ways that we can again assimilate and kind of compensate for things in ways that we hadn't in the past but there are still problems that overshadow excuse me there are still problems that overshadow our existence at times. Sometimes I hate to be a nihilist <laughs> and I hate to be a black pessimist, but, you know, the stereotypes and all of the negativity and, and all of the things that can really affect your comfort as a an Africanized person walking around here, um, that's what needs to be tackled, if that answers the
2: question. It does. <laughs> um, I think it's uh, certainly, it's, it's not an easy question to to be answered um and i think probably the biggest takeaway from today for the listeners is really about your body really about yeah. how you move through the world and paying attention to, to that and understanding the relationship yeah between how other people see you and how you carry yourself
0: uh-huh.
2: Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Um, it's fascinating, fascinating conversation, and I can't wait to see what is next for you. Oh,
0: well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Jacqueline Cherry is the Assistant Director of Dance at the African American Cultural Center. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. I'm Bridget Paul Valenza. Thanks for listening.